0: Hi, I'm Sean Eckford, a director here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily podcasts. And here we are, full swing into day one of the 2019 Festival of the Written Arts. I look most days to see if there's a a connecting theme with the authors that we've had on stage. And starting with Thursday night's presentation by Richard Van Camp... And then Friday's presentations by Ria Tregebov, and also Ian Hampton, along with Barbara Nickel. There was a bit of a theme about editing and, well, in the case of Richard, about his editors.
1: We were, we were talking tonight about um, how our, it's the editors, actually, that make us great writers, And my editors were Barbara Poling and Cheryl Cohen. And Barbara and I worked together 23 years ago on a novel called The Lesser Blessed. And we haven't worked together since. And I found that in 23 years, she's only gotten tougher and meaner. And uh, I was saying that um, she doesn't use Google Docs. She uses a pencil. And when, when I sent Moccasin Square Gardens in, several of the stories had already been published. And when she asked for my, my mailing address for the courier for the return, uh, I said, why would she, why does she need her address? I mean, my birthday isn't until September 8th. And, and she said, no, no, I'm sending your corrections. I'm like, I mean, what corrections? I mean, come on, I'm a Virgo, right? I mean, most of these have already been published. And I thought, well, whatever she sends, it'll take me, what, three days? I can, I can work through this, no problem. It took me three months. Rhea Tregobov,
0: whose book Rude Rosier. builds around an event that actually happened, a terror attack in Paris in the early 1980s. It was a time that she was actually living in Paris and spent, as she joked, a a lot of time researching the novel by returning to Paris to enjoy life in the French capital. But she also says, as a result, she had an awful lot of material that went into the first drafts of this novel And, well, she had to winnow it down a bit.
2: But what happens, this novel, which is uh, now a tidy uh, 250 pages, I think at one point it was 400. (laughs) Because I was just, I had so much information. I could just write all this. I wanted to recreate Paris as much as I could. And at some point, thank goodness, I realized... Readers are very generous and they can be very loving, but if you have Sarah sitting in Place des Vosges for 15 pages, (laughs) they might just give up on it. And I really think she, you know, how many pages can she sit in gardens?
0: With Ian Hampton, musician and author of Yan in 35 Pieces, and Barbara Nickel, we also had a unique opportunity here at the festival. Often the writers will talk about the editing process or the creative process in general, But this was a rare chance to have both the author and their editor on stage to talk about how the work was created and and some of the discussions they had around it. And in the case of Hampton and Nickel, to talk a bit about how they came up with the unique structure for this book.
3: So there's the visual element, but this book is also intensely about listening. In fact, it is structured like a concert. So, I'm wondering if you could tell us about this unique structure and also about how you came to choosing that structure.
4: Um, First of all, the book is topped and tailed with about physical sounds. The sounds that we all hear every day, like that plane just passing over. Um, A lot of the sounds can be annoying, but a lot of them can be quite wonderful. Uh, So, there's a physical side to that. And often, when I've talked to particularly adults, uh, we realize that music is an integral part of our lives. There's no escaping it. Uh, Each, in our own way, have preferences for music. And music has many, many social connotations. There's not a person in this room who will not have experienced, for instance, Mendelssohn's wedding march. (laughs) So I... Wanted to have, as I said before, uh, I took 35 favourite pieces. I have more p- favourite pieces than that. Um, as as my starting point, and the various stories which go along with that, I wanted to talk about music in real time, uh, with musicians rehearsing, and um, it seemed that... Yes, we had chapters on, let's say, Beethoven, but we also have chapters about the quartet rehearsing Beethoven. Uh, And then from there, and this is where Barb comes in, um, Barb says, well, we've got to keep the reader in focus, and we have all these anecdotes, we've got to tie them together somehow. And so we came up with this idea that the the book should read a little bit like a concert, with chapters and interludes and portraits and so on.
3: So between each chapter, we have an, an interlude, which is usually the, the quartet in, in present tense. The quart- Usually features the quartet. Sometimes it was something else.
4: That was a big problem for you.
3: <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But I, I remember in the early years of our working together, we'd meet once a week. Um, at the Langley Music School for about a morning. The first half hour was just spent in wonderful conversation, and then we'd sort of get to work. We kept finding material that didn't exactly fit within our chosen structure. So, for example, there would be a chapter, Mozart's Magic Flute, but then there was something else related to Mozart, but not exactly about the Magic Flute. And so there was We needed to find a way of focusing that. I I think at the beginning we had, like, there was um, chapter 15.5, and then there was chapter (laughs) 15.75. And, you know, it was stuff that we didn't want to lose because some of it was just so laugh-out-loud funny. Like, what do you do with all these stories about the London Symphony Orchestra in the 1950s from the point of view of one of the cellists? Um, You know, stuff about Sir Neville Mariner that included... You know, how Nev always showed up to rehearsal with a box lunch containing... No, a a lunch... A box containing a lunch that was slightly higher up in the food chain than anyone else's. (laughs) Um, So quite late in the process, we finally came up with this idea of having portraits which fit with the visual element as well. Um, So it's sort of like coming out of a concert into the lobby and then just viewing this gallery... So we would have portrait, Sir Neville Mariner, portrait, the Mozart quintets, portrait, um, Jacqueline Dupre. I think we even had, at one point, a portrait of a pub, which was your family watering hole. What was that one called?
4: The Boileau Arms.
3: Yes. And there were <laughs> <Why> ma- you? <laughs> there were many stories about this pub, but I think in the final, we didn't end up having a portrait of that one. So we had this big collage of stories. Like the one you just heard from Arnold Griller, who is the son of Sidney Griller, who was the first violinist of the Griller String Quartet. So there was from Colin. There were fellow musicians' stories. There were present-day scenes from the quartet, which often included stories within stories within stories. And so, how to place all this stuff in time? It was really hard. <laughs> um, Our structure wasn't chronological because, of course, it was wrapped, Ian's life was wrapped around music. As we
0: record our podcast uh, today for day one of the Festival of the Written Arts, of course, we're uh, just getting ready for the dinner break, and that'll be followed by Elizabeth Hay and Terry Fallis. I had a chance to catch up with Fallis, author of the Leacock Award-winning Best Laid Plans, as well as the new novel Albatross, which was literally just released, to talk a little bit of writing and a little bit of politics. So, um, I'm just going to start, like I ask a lot of the authors, how are you enjoying the festival experience so far?
5: It is one of the finest festivals I've ever been to, and I don't say that lightly. This is my third time uh, at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts, and I always really enjoy it. Such a unique setting. Sometimes a setting makes the festival, uh, and other times there are other factors, but the setting is such an important part of this festival, I think, and its success, because that's a beautiful venue, And give the authors a good chunk of time in front of a capacity crowd. We don't get that almost any other festival.
0: Now you said you've been here three times. You've had a while now to get used to this author thing. Uh, Do you think you made the right career move or should you stuck with what you were doing?
5: My only regret, well it depends on what basis you're uh, financially it's you know right the writing life is tough financially but as far as happiness and fulfillment is concerned my great regret is that I waited till I was 45 to write my first novel Uh, I would have started sooner had I known what I'd been missing so
0: I just uh, I love it now given the themes you started your your fiction career with I'm sure people have been asking you and if not let me be the first are you in fear of this coming election (laughs) in any way (laughs) shape or form well, I am. i without
5: being. I will try not to descend into partisanship, but uh, I I always get worried around election times, uh, and I'm hoping we make the right decision and we weigh the issues in the appropriate balances. And uh, so, yeah, it's always it's always tough around election time, and you know things happened recently that are. Giving the, the the government some some trouble, and the prime minister some trouble, so we'll see what uh, what he can do. But it's a long campaign, and I think that he he's a great campaigner. So uh, it can go either way, but I would not be surprised if uh, if we still have. If we're still calling him Prime Minister Trudeau after the October election, but we'll see.
0: Now, you, you dabbled into a little bit of the fictional dirty tricks and things like that, too, and, I'm, yes. I, you know, it seems that the reality has now eclipsed, you know, what what you talked about in your, your first novel. Is, mm-hmm. it, is it that a sense you get as well?
5: Or? Yeah, I don't think our, the state of politics has improved very much since my, uh, my first two novels, uh, and it was really what prompted me to write them a growing frustration with how we practice politics in this country uh, and uh, I wish it were different but it's so personal cynical negative uh, and and partisan uber partisan and combative that it's tough to get a, a sensible look at the issues when we're just slinging mud at one another uh, so I hope that will change one day and uh, I'm hoping that maybe... They might read my book a few times before the <laughs> campaign starts uh, and focus on their own platforms and not worry so much what the other guy is doing. And his is other guy. Well, I guess Elizabeth May is in the running too, and yeah. I wish her well because she's, a, she's a, a good person and a good politician, I think.
0: You created, though, I think, really an ideal of a candidate yes. in, in many ways. <laughs> and do, do you ever believe that, that someday someone will step forward who fits that mold? I, I hope it's possible i hope it's possible uh
5: I, I think it is possible it's whether or not uh the leadership of the parties can accept candidates like that and i hope they i hope they will because we need that kind of perspective uh that is not overburdened by political expediency but is thinking about the national interest and and policy that we need to tackle some of the issues we have uh, so i think there is room for Candidates like Angus McClintock, and I, I hope we get more of them.
0: Tell me a little bit about humor writing, because I think it's come up when we've had others on stage. They talk about that it's not always easy being funny. Have you found that it, that it gets easier as, as, as you produce more work or harder? I don't think it gets any easier. Uh, it feel to me it's it's quite
5: natural because it's my own sense of humor that is emerging through the characters. Uh, I'm not putting myself in a different zone and trying to cook up things that wouldn't naturally come to me. So the lines you read in the book are the lines I'd be using at the dinner table that night, uh, you know, with our with our kids or our family. Uh, so I think if it's not naturally embedded in the story, it, it's it is hard to do. But if it's just part of who you are and your normal discourse, uh, it feels easier to to put it into the into the
0: stories themselves. Now we're talking before you actually take the stage, and all things going well, the podcast will be out before you take the stage. So can you give people a bit of a sense of, of what you'll be doing? Is it a straight reading, or do you do a, a multimedia thing like some of our authors I do? I do have a
5: multimedia thing. I I actually develop a, sort of a slide or PowerPoint presentation of sorts for all of my novels. I do it uh, as self-defense. I kind of Uh, don't want the audience to have to stare at me for the whole time, so I give them something to look at on the screen. (laughs) But this will be the first time I've actually done it for this new book. The book just came out on Tuesday, so uh, I have not test-driven it and practiced it and honed it and got the timing all right. So we're going to see. It's going to be a bit of an experiment, and there may be 550 guinea pigs in the audience tonight as I work through this talk for the first time. Great. I really appreciate your time, Terry. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: As well as getting a little insight into the writer's craft, often here at the festival, we get what I've come to call reader confessions, usually on the order of, well, I didn't really read the book. But anyway, I'll I'll let you listen to this interaction between uh, one of our audience members and Ria Trigabov.
6: I wanted to finish it last night and I fell asleep, so... (laughs) If the answer is coming, then you can just say, go finish the book. But I'm fascinated by the character of Laura and (laughs) what the heck she's doing in that book. So if you explain that at the end of the book, you don't need to explain it now. But if you don't, then what the heck is Laura?
2: (laughs) What the heck is Laura doing in the... Why is she so puzzling? Sorry. Is she after Michael? Oh, okay. Yeah, you'll find out. You'll find me <laughs> okay uh, so um there's a a very charming very attractive uh young woman who 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 oh now I get it um, who's in the uh who's in already in Paris And she sort of wants to show uh Sarah and Michael all the good things there so um and she's the one and she's the one that the that sort of leads them in part of the joint. part of part of Sarah's journey in Paris is learning to let go uh, some of her uh puritanical qualities and be a little bit more hedonistic and Laura is helping with that and and so you'll see
0: an author's presentation here at the festival is also sometimes a chance to learn a little something new that doesn't always have anything to do with the author's work, and that was the case for the Thursday Night audience listening to Richard Van Camp, as he told the story of a project he worked on that involved researching how a suit of samurai armor and a samurai sword ended up in Fort Smith Northwest Territories he talked as part of that research to a fellow named Larry Lee, who lives on the Lower Mainland and is an expert on swordsmithing, weaponry, and that sort of thing. And Richard said the night, Thursday night, that he was presenting was, for swordsmiths, a very important occasion.
1: He he was so incredible in his knowledge and, and his love for the craft. And he said, you're writing a book about samurai swords and I said yep I'm writing ai want to write about a samurai sword and a suit of samurai armor in Fort Smith and he goes you need to write this down because the world is forgetting this he said the greatest sword makers in the world wait for the August full moon because the August full moon which is tonight the August full moon turns a certain yellow no sorry red platinum and as you know when with the greatest sword makers in the world they pound the steel and they fold it and they pound the steel and they fold it hundreds of times, right? It takes months, it take years to, to make the perfect blade. Each one, even to this day, no matter where we are in the world, whether it's Seashelt or Fort Smith or Tokyo, anywhere, you name it, the greatest sword makers in the world are watching for tonight's full moon. What they do is they, they fold and they pound, they fold and they pound, they temper the blade, temper the blade, because the more they do, the sharper it becomes. And what they do, the last pounding they do, after they're done, they hold and they heat the blade to the exact color of tonight's full moon before teeming it in the water for the last time. So this is a very sacred moon, and I wanted to share that with you this evening.
0: Now, just before we wrap up for today, I want to take you back to the 2017 Festival of the Written Arts, our 35th anniversary, where we launched the project that we call Legacy of literacy. It's essentially a, a fundraising effort and here's how our board president, Jean Bennett, described what the basic goal was back in 2017.
6: Well, What the endowment does is gives us that steady stream of funding that we can count on. So it sits with the community foundation, they invest it and manage it for us, and we're assured then of every year we know that there's a reasonably predictable amount of money that we will get. So one of the things that we're looking at right now is if we get to that million dollars, or when we get to that million dollars, we're looking at about $40,000 a year in income that comes to the festival for us to do this important community and educational outreach, to ensure that we can continue to bring writers from across the country, from the territories, from wherever.
0: So fast forward from there... To Thursday night when we had our opening reception, and Jean gave us a bit of an update.
6: So I am so excited to be able to tell you that we are at (laughs) $775,000. We've raised over half a million dollars in two years, so we are way ahead of schedule, uh, and I'm hoping uh, we'll continue to do that. As part of that, uh, one of the things we're wanting to do this weekend is, thanks to the Sunshine Coast Community Foundation, um, we have a matching uh, grant. That is, uh, then another individual donor has come forward with a matching grant, so we have. in matching funding, and we're really hoping to be able to reach that $15,000 by the end of this weekend. Of course, every single dollar matters, and every single dollar is eligible for additional matching money from uh, Heritage Canada, from a program that they offer to support uh, endowments for arts organizations.
0: So that's going to do it for our first podcast of the 2019 Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts. You can find out more about what's going on here at Rockwood at writersfestival.ca. You can follow us on Twitter at SCF. WA, and we hope to see you here on the grounds Saturday and Sunday.